Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Amos chapter 8 as we have this first sermon of 2023. And again, I just want to wish all of you a happy New Year's as we get ready to dig in. I, uh, you know, as you approach the end of the year, everybody starts to put out surveys of uh, new resolutions, patterns, habits, things that need to change. And there are also a number of different organizations that begin to conduct surveys and to look at uh, different trends that have been developing uh, throughout society over the past year, which seem likely to continue into the years to come. And for the last three years, I've been through the pandemic and then just this last year, 2022, I've been tracking one trend which seems to be getting worse and worse and which is particularly important for you and me. And that trend is the estimated number of churches that are expected to close their doors permanently in the next 10 years. I uh, was looking around Canada for a number of evangelical organizations that were studying these trends to see if there were any that could offer some insight. And I came across a reputable researcher and church consultant by the name of Tom Rayner. He's the founder of the Rayner Group, which is a, an organization that consults and does work with different churches to assess where they might be struggling spiritually or if there might be any unhealth within the congregation. And he's been doing this for over 30 years now, and he has conducted a survey of over 350,000 churches both in the United States as well as in Canada. So this is a broad sampling of churches. And he offered several projections for 2023 and beyond that I think are noteworthy for you and me to consider this morning before we jump into Amos chapter 8. He points out that there are a number of trends, and I want to share these trends with you. Trend number one, which should grab our attention. 2023 will be a record year for church adoptions. 2023 will be a record year for church adoptions. You might be thinking to yourself, what is an adopted church? An adopted church is a congregation that comes into the care and under the authority and supervision of another church, which is usually seen to be a healthier church. Tom Rayner says that if the current trends hold, more churches will seek adoption from other churches in 2023 than the previous 15 years combined because they are on the verge of dying and they are on the verge of closing their doors for good. Trend number two, the time between pastors for churches will be longer than ever before in the entirety of the 20th century combined. In 2001, a long-term interim pastorate, this is a You you know, a a pastor leaves a church, and before that church is ready to hire its new pastor, a fellow usually is asked to come in and to fill the pulpit and to provide basic leadership and guidance for the church until that time that they're ready to call their next pastor. This is an interim pastor. And one of the trends that is being observed is that uh, in 2001, a long-term interim pastorate lasted approximately 12 months. In other words, it took a church... Uh, 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 an unhealthy church, that is, a church that was trying to regroup, get, you, know, you know, get its bearings and, and get itself situated to call its next pastor, it would take them as long as a year with an interim pastor before they were ready to call their next pastor. In 2022 and into 2023, 
the average, not the longest, but the average interim pastorate lasts 3.7 years. In other words, on average, a church is taking three and a half years on average with an interim pastor before they're able to get to a place where they are unified enough as a congregation to extend a call to their next pastor. Trend number four, more churches will request consultations from parachurch ministries and denomination, denominational ministries than at any point in North American church history going all the way back 300 years to the days of the colonies. To prove this point, Rayner claims that his consultancy ministry receives 10 times more requests now than three years ago, 10 times more over the course of just three years. Trend number five, more pastors and staff will become bivocational or remain co-vocational as there are diminishing finances within the church in order to pay their salary. I'd never heard the term co-vocational before. Some of you have probably never heard the term bivocational before. Bivocational refers to individuals who have to work full-time in the workplace, the secular workplace outside of the church in order to earn a salary to provide for the needs of their family. And then they work in the church, earning their income outside of the church. They work in the church voluntarily. Bivocational pastors, that term is specific in the sense that they want to be full-time, but they can't. This new term, co-vocational, means that pastors no longer want to be full-time. They want to remain in their secular employment because they're looking at the situation in the church and do not believe that there is enough financial stability or long-term security to risk losing their secular employment in order to go work in the church. So they don't even have the desire to go full-time. Bivocational, they would like to go full-time. Co-vocational, they're saying, no thanks. And what Tom Rayner is saying is that by 2025, across all churches in North America, over 50% of them by 2025 will have a pastor who is either bivocational or co-vocational. That includes rural churches and small-town churches. That's a lot of different churches. But what was really alarming, trend number six, church autopsies will continue to be the fastest growing area of evangelical research in North America. Church autopsies. I've never heard of such a thing as a church autopsy. Rayner specifies that churches are closing their doors at an alarming rate and researchers are interested in learning what the reasons were and the trends and when those trends may have started that resulted in that church's decision to close its doors. Now you're thinking, okay, this is research scattered across North America, but Canada is a much smaller country than North America. Perhaps those trends are not as true for Canada as they are for North America. After all, he's covering, I'm sure, a larger group, statistically speaking, of churches from the States than he is from Canada. Well, I anticipated that as well. So I dug into the numbers. According to a recent CBC report, National Trust for Canada, the NTC, National Trust for Canada, conducted an extensive 
research project surveying and looking at thousands upon thousands of churches across Canada and came to the conclusion that by 2030, 9,000 churches here in Canada will forever close their doors. 9,000. And you're probably wondering yourself, well, how big of a number is that? That constitutes roughly 40% of all churches in Canada. And if current trends hold, that number is expected to accelerate from 2030 to 2035. If it takes the next seven years for 40% of our churches to close, they're projecting it's going to take five more years for the remaining 60% who still survive to close. Now, you might be wondering, well, what kind of an organization is NTC? Interestingly enough, they are a historic building preservation society. They're not even an evangelical organization. They are the kind of organization similar to what we see over here at St. Paul's, where churches leave or close their doors or die. And this is an organization that says, this is a building that has historic value for our community. We need to try to save it. To give you a metaphor, this NTC, National Trust of Canada, would be analogous to a vulture kind of circling overhead, just waiting for the body to drop. All of this, as I was praying about it and thinking on it, all throughout the waning months of 2022, November and December. And by the way, that CBC report came out in late October. So I was praying and thinking about all of it. It reminded me of this verse from Amos chapter 8, in which God says, Behold, in verse 11, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, he says, a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. And as I'm looking at these trends, and by the way, this is not merely statistical. I've had personal experience with this. Here in the interior of BC, we are seeing more and more churches from with the Fellowship of Evangelical Baptists, that's our denomination, who are struggling with great divisions within their congregations. The pandemic has broken many churches. Many churches coming out of the pandemic are divided over all of the issues associated with COVID-19, gathering and health protocols and vaccinations and all the rest. And as a result, everybody is unhappy with their leadership, what their leadership has done. It didn't matter what their leadership did. You have about 50% of the church that doesn't like what they did or 50% of the church that wishes that, that did like what they did, but now doesn't like how they're handling the remaining 50% two years post-pandemic, or a year post-pandemic. They're all upset. And pastors here in the interior, as well as across the country of FEB, Fellowship Evangelicals, are deciding it's time to leave the pulpit. More churches within our denomination than at any other time in the last 10 years are calling no confidence votes in their pastors. And here's the glaring mistake that I don't think most churches are aware of. Enrollment at seminary has plunged. You may not like what your pastor did during the pandemic. You may not like what he's done post-pandemic. You may be thinking, we're going to get rid of this guy and we're going to get a new guy. And guess what? There are no new guys. There are none. The willingness of young men coming 
to the end of high school or coming to the end of their four-year university diploma are not choosing to devote the next three to four years or six years, as the case may be, of their lives to get a master's of divinity or to get a doctorate in the Word of God. Seminary enrollment has plunged so much so that in order for our own denomination seminary, Northwest Baptist here in British Columbia, to continue to survive, they have had to implement a whole different way of training up seminary graduates. It's called the Immerse Program, in which you can stay in your local church and stay at your full-time job, and you can do it entirely by remote learning, telecommuting, so to speak, over over the internet. Now, what are the reasons for that? Is it because people wanted to stay home? No. This program was implemented way back in 2015, before the pandemic. It is not. Listen, listen to me all the way. The reason for this, Pastor Al, as stated in an email that I had with Dr. Barton Preeb, who is the new president of Northwest, has nothing to do with the pandemic. It started in 2015 because they could not get enough students to enroll to justify the payroll to continue the operation of the seminary because, again, 18- and 22-year-olds coming out of high school or university are not committed to going and devoting four to six years of their life to studying the Word of God. The enrollment in the Immerse program is individuals who are 30 to 40 years of age who already have a family and young kids and cannot afford to take the next four to six years of their life away from their job to, to relocate down to Vancouver and to pursue that training. Now, there are some really godly men who are 30 to 40 years of age, and this is an invaluable program. The loss here is not in innovation. It's that we were forced into innovating. Hear me closely. The loss is not that we were wrong to develop immerse to begin training 30 and 40-somethings, The loss is that we no longer have 18 and 22-year-old somethings who believe that the Word of God is so precious and so valuable that from that age they sense a divine calling on them to devote the next four to six years of their life to soaking in the Scriptures and saying, I will serve God by loving His church and preaching His Word. And I'm going to give the rest of my life to it. That's the loss. Which again brings me back To Amos chapter 8. Behold, the days are coming in which I will send a famine on the land, not of food, not of water, but of hearing the word of God. And I believe that there is a lot of truth in many of these statistics. You know the old saying, four out of five dentists recommend something that's been totally made up? Sure, you've heard that joke before. When we come to statistics, we need to always approach it with a degree of caution, which is why I've been really scrutinizing and looking at all of this. Some of it is not accurate, but nevertheless, there is a trend that is unmistakable. Churches' attendance is declining. And as a point of fact, there are multiple historic preservation societies emerging who are eyeing all of the churches in their community as a potential gain to strip the assets Pastor Al, let me just continue to strip the assets and to pick the bones of a dying church. And all of this speaks to a spirituality, a broader spirituality that exists within Canada as a whole. And so I think it behooves us this morning 
to look at these trends and to turn to the Word of God in order to see what Scripture has to say to us. The Bible says, Behold, the days are coming when there will be a famine on the land of hearing the Scriptures. Now, why does God say that? Behold, the days are coming. Because He wants to warn us. Why does the Lord want to warn us? The Lord wants to warn us of these things so that having an understanding of this, we will know how we need to respond. There is grace in this prophecy. It is indeed, in the book of Amos, a prophecy of judgment, but for the Lord's people who will heed that prophecy, there is counsel and there is guidance. So we pick it up in verse 1. In verse 1, the uh, prophet Amos says, this is what the Lord God showed to me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Spring, summer, autumn. We're in winter. Next comes spring, then we have summer, then we have autumn. And so runs the gradual process of maturation. Here, as, in, as often in the Bible, this idea of fruit depicts the ripening of human conduct and the development of human character to its full potential, either of good or of ill. As it puts out the buds in the spring, so it turns into fruit in the summer, and so you better pick it by autumn, because if it stays on the vine or if it stays on the tree, eventually it will rot. And so what God is saying to Amos is that there is something afoot within Israel. There is something going on here. And he shows him in a prophetic vision a basket of fruit, and when Amos looks at that fruit, he says, what do you see? And, and Amos says, I see a basket of fruit. And the very next thing God says is he says, in verse 2, the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. What you may not understand, if you don't have an awareness of the original languages, is that the word for summer fruit is very similar in how it sounds to the word uh, for the end. Now, indeed, he is showing him a vision of summer fruit. The idea is you better get that fruit in. You better pluck it because autumn is coming in which the fruit's going to start to rot. You can't leave it in the field. You need to get it while you can. And so he shows him this, and then there's a word play that takes place in the Hebrew language. Number one, it says, what do you see? He says, a summer basket of fruit. He says, indeed, the end has come. Now, to you and me, that doesn't sound like a wordplay, but in the Hebrew, the word for summer basket of fruit and the word for end actually sound almost the exact same way. There's just one slight difference of pronunciation at the very end of the word there. And so God is using this wordplay as well as this vision of summer fruit to tell Amos something is coming which is to say that there is a grace and a mercy for us in this prophecy, although it foretells of dark days that are approaching. And so as we're reflecting on all of these things this morning, I think it would be wise for us to consider what Amos has to say. God, speaking through the prophet of Amos, identifies Israel as having a particular spiritual character. And that spiritual character is going to then be met by certain judgments which come from the Lord. And so let's look at the spiritual character. What do we see when we look into the prophecy of Amos? And do we consider that indeed there is a similar spiritual character here within Canada? He, being, he picks up the uh, condemnation in verse 4. He says, Hear this, you who trample on the needy, and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, 
When will the new moon be over that we may sell again, and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale? That that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. As he picks it up there in verse 3, we see here that there's a particular character of individuals within Israel, and this is what the Lord God is concerned about. If you and I were to approach any person in Canada to ask them, what do you think about the state of Canada, who would we approach? Would we approach an individual living on the street and say, well, what do you think about the state of Canada? Well, probably not. Would we look at the news at, on TV at night and try to see what the news commentators were saying about the state of Canada? Almost certainly yes. None of us are going to go and ask the poor guy living on the street, how do you think our country is doing? All of us are going to go to the sophisticated individuals, the studied individuals, the commentators, the politicos, the individuals who look at all these things and say, well, what do you think is the current state of our country? Undoubtedly, if we were going to say, well, what do you think is the state of our city, we would be inclined to listen to what the mayor has to say. If we were going to say, what do you think is the state of our province, we'd be inclined to go and ask the premier, and so forth and so on. There is this natural tendency to say, let's go ask the leading men of society what they think of our society. That's how it was in Amos' day. That's how it is in our day. And yet God says there's a problem with trying to assess the health of your society by only looking at what the leading men of that society have to say. In fact, he goes on to condemn them. He says, here's what's going on with the leading men, and here his focus in Amos happens to be on the businessmen. He says, hear this, you who trample on the needy, and in the next phrase it says, bring the poor of the land to an end. These are individuals who are exploiting the middle and lower class. So we understand here that these are individuals who are well-off financially, who are probably making good money, but then the question arises, how exactly are they doing it? Well, number one, they are liars and cheats. Writing at the turn of the 20th century about an archaeological discovery of balances and weights which were found at Gezer, which is, for those of you who are not aware, it's a spot roughly halfway between Jerusalem and modern-day Tel Aviv, the archaeologist George Barton writes the following comment. He says, a glance at the weights, he's unearthed a whole bunch of weights in this archaeological dig. He says, a glance at the weights here described makes it evident that the standards of the ancient Hebrews were not exact. The peasants still used field stones as weights, selecting one that was approximately of the weight that they desired. And even among the merchants, the upper-class traders and businessmen, even among the merchants of modern Jerusalem, where one would expect more exact standards than among the peasantry, what we find are odd scraps of old iron, irregularly shaped. Indeed, his conclusion, of the weights found at Gezer, so many were under the average standard and so many above it that the inference we can conclude is that many men had one set of weights by which to purchase and an entirely different set of weights by which to sell. In other words, everybody has two sets of weights that they're using to engage in business with other people. Which means if you're going to the marketplace to buy something, you better not forget your weights at home. You better bring them with you. 
In other words, what Amos is presenting to us, as God is speaking through Amos, is that everybody is on the take. Everybody is looking to gain their own advantage at the expense of everyone else. And God condemns this behavior. A standard of coinage exists today, which is good. It has a consistent monetary value, or so we think. It doesn't really anymore. It tends, to, you know, it tends to slide from day to day. But it's a, a standard of measurement that is ostensibly issued by the government, which necessarily does away with the delay and the onerous process of having to weigh out certain amounts of food and to decide how much we're going to pay for this amount of weight. It's intended to expedite the process. And we have that today. They didn't have that in Amos' day. In other words, in Amos' day, their society and their culture depended upon weights. That's just how they did business, which means that it was understood there would be a slight variation from one set of weights to another. This was to be expected. And yet what Amos is, what Amos is pronouncing judgment upon here is that this was exploited by everyone for their own personal advantage. It makes the condemnation of Amos that more damning of this society. They're all on the take. They're all looking to take advantage of each other. Why this is important to you and me is that in business, we as Christians, followers of God, are called to be scrupulous and honest in all of our dealings. Every action that you and I engage in is a reflection on the moral character of God. And so if we are looking to take advantage of people, if we are looking to bilk people, then that is reflecting a distrust of God to meet our needs and to provide for us. This is sobering, and we ought to consider this carefully. Many of you are aware of the fact that I'm from Texas and that my wife still works by means of telecommuting for a company in Texas. She receives her paycheck in American dollars. We bring that paycheck from American dollars on a monthly basis over into Canadian. Every day, the bank sets a standard of exchange. An American dollar should be roughly $1.25 Canadian. And every day it slides. $1.27 today, $1.24 tomorrow, $1.23 the next day, back to $1.25 the day after that. But it's always got a whole long decimal point that comes after it. Today you'll get $1.27389678, on and on it goes. Now, did they ever round that up into my favor? Not once. Not once. And in fact, if you check the bank's website in the morning, $1.27, great. You go to the bank, you say, okay, I want to transfer this money over. I've had it happen almost every single time that the rate that was advertised at 9 a.m. at the opening bell at the start of the business day is not the rate that is given to me when I get there even 30 minutes later. 9.30 a.m., what was $1.27 inevitably comes out to be $1.26 or more likely $1.25. Now you say, well, two pennies on the dollar, what's the big deal? Well, when you're bringing your entire paycheck over, it matters. But then you go and you check the website right after $1.27. These are our banking institutions. But isn't it true of us as well? How many of you use Facebook Marketplace? We advertise things on Marketplace for a dollar amount that we know often is inflated. 
Now, if you want to have people bid on it, that's a different matter altogether. But I'm scrolling through Marketplace, and I'm looking at these pictures, which are so carefully shot and staged. And this price, which seems to be really, really a good deal. I've been to so many of these things to pick them up. Particularly, I've had this experience over the last three months uh, leading up to Christmas. And once you get there, and the product is not as advertised. Speakers, don't plug them in. Don't test them. They're, they're good. I checked them just, just the other day. Well, why can't I plug them in? Well, I mean, if you really want to. I mean, I guess. It's like, well, do these things actually? Oh, yeah, they work great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, then why are you reluctant to let me hook them up and put on a CD and see if they work? This happened on multiple occasions. Who among us can deny that we're living in a society that is on the take? This should cause us a moment of sober reflection because all of this taking comes at the expense of someone. And you know who that someone is? The middle class and the poor. But what really stands out to me as I look at this passage, if you look at verse 5, these so-called businessmen who are on the take, look at what it says. When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath? And it's, it's a, the way that the Hebrew poetry works is it's a repetition of what comes before. So the question is, when is the new moon going to be over? And then to repeat that, when is the Sabbath going to be over? In other words, when are these days of worship and celebration going to end so that we may continue in our business dealings. The businessman of Amos Day would tell you that he was religious, would tell you that he went to church, and yet as God is denouncing these businessmen, it is clear what their real worth is, what their real value is. It is not in the worship of God. It's in the conduct of trade, so much so that to go to church is an inconvenience and a disruption of their continuing trade. The businessman of Amos Day, again, would not go so far as to tell you that he was godless, but it becomes clear that his sacred days are the days in which he can conduct business and make a profit. And all of this comes at the expense of the poor. You and I would be prone to ask the leading businessmen, the wealthy, the Jeff Bezos and the Elon Musks and the well, perhaps the Donald Trumps. Where do you think our society is? And yet God is saying, what you need to be asking is, how are these men making their money? And what, how does it leave their employees? What is the plight of the middle or lower class Canadian? And that's a question that we should ask. Our society's health is not based on the enrichment of a few, but on the profit and the blessing of all. And that is God's concern. What is prominent here is that these are individuals who should be going to church and worshiping, but they are not. And look at the judgment that comes next. First judgment. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who dwells in it? And all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. 
And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I'll bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. And here is what the Lord is saying. The marks of a society which has reached the autumn of its probationary period, concerning which God has drawn a line of finality, what marks that society is total insecurity. It's described in verse 10 as sorrow, death, and eternal bitterness. It's entirely allowable to treat verses 8 and 9 as metaphorical of a society which has suffered the loss of stability and regularity, where absolutes are no longer recognized and rules are there simply to be broken. In verses 8 and 9, it says, Shall the land, shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn it who dwells in it? And then in verse 9, sorry, in verse 8, it says it's going to be like the Nile of Egypt. And then in verse 9, it says, On that day I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. When interpreting Scripture, it's important to understand that all prophecy pertains to the immediate situation, but there's also a forward-looking element of prophecy. There's a, a finality to it that comes at the end of days. And as we look at this prophecy, many, many theologians have interpreted that statement that God is going to make the sun stop shining at noon as a literal event. Now, I have no reason to discount that interpretation. I have no reason to say to you today that indeed, at the end of days, when all has been said and done, and when God comes in judgment, that the sun won't actually be supernaturally darkened at noon. But here, as Amos is prophesying to Israel, this serves a metaphorical purpose. If the sun isn't shining at noon, business stops. If the sun isn't shining at noon, crops are not growing. If the Nile is swelling, if the waters are flooding, what is being described here is catastrophic destruction. In the context of what's happening in Israel, we understand that there's a total loss of stability. What marks the end of a society that has turned its back on God and has made profit and money its ultimate goal and its ultimate pursuit? Well, society comes unglued and unstable. That's what the prophet is telling us. And furthermore, when a man gets out of step with God, nature gets out of step with man. So that you see more and more of these catastrophes and these calamities arising. So again, step back and ask yourself the question, have we seen an increase of natural catastrophes and calamities here in Canada in recent years? Do I need to answer the question? 2017, the worst wildfire season ever recorded up until that point in history, until, of course, the next year, 2018, which surpassed the one before it. Then from 2019 to 2020 and into 2021, we have a global pandemic in which all of our commerce is greatly diminished and reduced, and now we're in the midst of inflation. In 2022, we saw another brutal wildfire season. We've seen heat domes. We've seen atmospheric rivers. Just in the past weeks, there was what was described as a bomb cyclonic winter storm. I never heard such a thing before. Four feet of snow dumped in eastern Canada, specifically in Buffalo, just across the border in New York. Four feet in 24 hours. They're still digging to find the bodies. Everybody says that this is a result of man-made 
pollution. I don't think it's the result of carbon dioxide per se, but I do believe it is man-made pollution in the sense that our sin is causing our world to further rebel and to break its norms. And all of this comes as a result of what God has promised to us in his word. It all dates back to Genesis chapter 3, in which man, Adam, sins against God, and God promises Adam, now the fields are going to have thistles and thorns. Now you're going to do your farming by the sweat of your brow. And we see this prophesied all the way throughout the Old Testament, supernatural calamities, destructions, all of this culminating in Jesus' prophecy in Matthew chapter 24, in which he says, when the day of the Lord comes, it will be like the beginning of birth pains. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. You're going to hear of earthquakes and famines in various places. He says all of these things are just the beginning, meaning they're going to get more and more and worse and worse. Well, all of that brings us to the most severe judgment of all, the one which we should fear the most. In verse 11, Behold, the days are coming, he says, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Through Amos, God is not offering an, in, an extended analysis of the existing peril that lies close at hand, but a forewarning of a coming one. The days are coming, he says. It tells about the future in order to prepare his people for the future. It says the days are coming in order that the time before they arrive, we may be filled to the utmost to profit from the time we've been given so that we can be sustained through that season of danger. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, let us eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. He says that as a criticism, meaning that God's people understand the future that is coming. They understand there is an eternal life and that by that knowledge, they will live differently than the world. The Lord takes us at this level and offers us the grace of a forewarning, particularly forewarning that the truth of God cannot be forfeited and there not be a catastrophe that comes with it. This is when it is wrong for you and me to be belatedly coming to the truth. During the Christmas and holiday season, oftentimes we forget to send that Christmas card to that special someone that we were trying to send it to and we had forgotten. So we see them later on. We say, oh, Merry belated Christmas. It's after the fact. I'm coming to you late. And oftentimes that's okay. You have a birthday, someone forgets to wish you a happy birthday, they say, happy belated birthday. But what the scriptures are telling us here is this is not something we want to arrive to late. This is when it will do no good to be belated. In verse 12, starting in verse 11, it says that losing the truth will be like a famine, a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. And when that blessing is withdrawn, verse 12 tells us that there is no way to recover. Amos anticipated this belated concern for the truth, and he foresaw a belated repentance in verse 10. If you look at verse 10, it says, I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. The first part of the verse indicates that they are 
mourning, that they are lamenting, that God has brought them to a place of brokenness. They are able to understand that there is sin, that they have done something wrong, and yet it is too late. The days have come. They have arrived. And verse 12 reinforces this. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro in order to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. They've understood they've lost something, and now they're looking for it, but it's gone. This is not something you want to arrive to late. The verb wander in verse 12 is used of the rolling gait of drunkards in Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 7. It is used of the swaying of trees in the wind in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 2. It is used also in 1 Samuel to describe the quivering of lips in agitation. So here, as in those other passages, those who hardly know what they are doing or who are flapping in panic or agitation, they don't understand how to get to where they want to go. They're wandering around aimlessly. They've lost the scriptures. The day is too far gone, and the truth has gone with it. The vacuum does not, however, remain unfilled. Look at verse 14. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. You read that and you're like, what is that? The uh, guilt of Samaria, what is that? Or uh, the God of Dan, as your God lives, O Dan? You know, you can go blind researching the historical documents to try to figure out what this stuff is. The point is, is that this is cult religion. These are individuals who think that they're worshiping the one true God, and they're going to describe this one true God, this, this God in false ways. They're going to identify him with different things. And the point that God is trying to make is that when the truth departs, the vacuum does not remain unfilled, but that cults and deception and error fills it. These things rush in. That's what Amos is getting at. In this famine of the truth, Amos sees here that when these errors rush in, when these marauding beasts of deception fill the vacuum, guess who are the individuals who suffer the most? And it's surprising. Verse 13. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. The lovely virgins and the young men is a reference to individuals who are on the verge of marrying. These are going to be your 18 to 22-year-old somethings. These individuals historically, throughout time, have been understood as the strongest and most resilient portion of the population. You get older, you're infirm. Younger, you lack wisdom. But you come to this age, you're just stepping out into adulthood. Whatever happens to you, you can bounce back. Whatever calamity may fall, you can endure it, you can get through it, and there's still lots of life ahead of you whereby you can make up whatever you lost in those early years. And what God is saying here through the prophet, Isaiah, uh, prophet Amos is that those individuals which historically have been the strongest members of society are the ones who are going to be looking for the truth. They're going to be hungering and thirsting for it, but they're not going to be able to find it. And they are the ones who will suffer the most. What calamity comes from not having the truth? What disaster strikes an individual who doesn't know the word of God? 
This is what Amos is presenting to us today. The individuals we need to be most concerned about having access to the scriptures and being able to walk with God are those individuals who are now our children and the next five to 15 years going to be stepping into positions of adulthood. The future lies with them. But they will not come to that moment of leadership in a vacuum. They will arrive at that moment of leadership having inherited whatever we gave to them. That's what Amos is saying. This prophecy, we don't know the exact date. It's given sometime between 750 and 740 B.C. At this point in human history, Assyria, which in previous years had been the big bad bully on the block, Assyria has gone into a position, a period of transition. They're in between leaders. There's indecisive leadership. And Israel is thinking, yeah, Assyria is gone. We're now going to become the big boys on the block. If you ask all the leading men in Amos' day, who is it that's going to rise up and fill the vacuum left by Assyria? They would say, well, we are. It's never been so good in the land of Israel as it is right now. They are completely oblivious to the coming spiritual calamity. And just 20 years later, in 720 B.C., Assyria, under the leadership of Tiglath-Pileser, is going to unleash an invasion which will wipe northern Israel off the map. They thought they were at the beginning of their ascendancy, but they were really at the cusp of being dragged away into exile. They were mistakenly believing that all the signs pointed towards good times ahead, happy new year. But all the signs really pointed to this. You're going to lack hearing the word of God very soon. And just as we're raising our kids and we're thinking we're handing them off to a better future, what Amos is saying is your kids, when they get to that point of 20, 22, 24, 25 years of age, they are the ones that are going to hurt the most. So, this is actually a blessing for us to consider today. We see trends within Canada, and we have this warning from the prophet Amos. What then should we do? If we know that there's a famine coming on the land. My wife is gesturing at me. I've got... I'm sick. I'm still recovering from a cold, so I've been chewing on cough drops. That's cherry flavor on my lips, in case you were wondering. (laughs) What should we do? What should we do? If we understand that there's a famine coming, how should we respond? The answer to that question lies in what you think about the Bible. Is it precious to you? You say, yes, pastor, of course. We're Baptists. You preach from it every week. Yeah, but what if I'm not here to preach? Do you read it every day? Are you in your word day by day to hear what God has to say to you through his word? If we're going to take the message of Amos 8... And we're going to see parallels to our current day, which I think there are absolute parallels. Then we have to understand that there is a fruit growing in Canada. And that fruit will come to its full fruition at some point in time. 
If churches are closing their doors by the hundreds, indeed the thousands, where does that leave you and me? If there is going to be so many pulpits silenced across our country, how do we brace ourselves for that coming storm? I think that the first thing is we have to love the word of God like we have not loved anything else. We have to treasure the scriptures above everything. We say it here all the time. God is sending you and me a signal that there is going to be a famine on this land. It is never going to be the eradication of scripture. God's word will never be taken from off the face of the earth because of his grace in our lives. And indeed, I see the prophecy of Amos chapter 8 as another incredible grace. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. If we see here that what God is saying is the greatest calamity, the greatest disaster is not, in fact, the rivers flooding our whole town off the map, or in fact, the sun falling out of the sky, but that the greatest calamity is that we will not have God's word, that there will be a famine of God's word, then the warning that God is giving to us here is that the greatest disaster that faces you and me is not falling into the hands of a tyrannical and oppressive government or into the persecuting hands of Satan himself. The greatest danger is this, is that we wouldn't treasure that which is most precious which is scripture, God's voice, he himself speaking into our lives. This is the greatest calamity. That is the greatest spiritual danger, which is to say we should treasure God's word. You know, I'm not a big one for New Year's resolutions, but if you've been attending here for the last, since 2016, you understand every New Year's sermon, I preach a different message every year, but it's kind of the same message. How many of you can recall in previous New Year's me saying, hey, for 20-whatever or you know, 2000-and-whatever, we should resolve to read our Bibles every day. Anybody here remember me preaching a sermon like that on New Year's? What's sad is that there are so many not raising their hands <laughs> because I actually preach this exact same sermon every first Sunday of January. Every first Sunday. <laughs> Different texts, mind you but the same message. The greatest spiritual calamity is not whatever the government is up to. The greatest spiritual calamity is not if we should even have Christianity outlawed here in Canada. The greatest danger, the greatest spiritual calamity is that you and I should be indifferent to the word of God and wake up too late one day to realize it is lost from us, not to be found. That is the greatest spiritual danger. And if we don't treasure God's word, our kids are going to grow up not treasuring God's word. If we're not talking about being in the word and doing a daily devotion, if we're not every evening at the dinner table saying, well, in my quiet time this morning, this is what God was saying to me, our kids will not grow up instinctively thinking that they need to be in the word. There's no guarantee, even if we are in the Word every Sunday or every day and every night at dinner talking about these things, there's no guarantee that they're going to be in the Word, but there's even more likelihood they're not going to be in it if we're not in it. Church, we must be in the Scriptures. Have we got a Bible still in our hands? Then let us prize it. Let's commit its precious truth to our heart and our memory. It is not an inalienable possession. It may not be ours forever. Is the Bible still preached in our church? 
Let us love to hear the word of God preached. Let us love to hear it preached. Let us be urgent to bring others within earshot of it that they may hear it preached as well. Is the Bible still preached in our church? Let us thank God that it is because it is not guaranteed to be this way forever. Let us count the blessings of a church that is holding to the scriptures as faithfully as it possibly can. And let us rue the day that we should ever awaken that there are no more pastors willing to fill that pulpit in order to preach that word. You know how we know that we really love to hear it preached? Because we want to share that with everyone else. We should be a church inviting people to hear God's word. We would be if we loved it as we ought. You know, I'm sure, that I love the Dallas Cowboys. It's my confession. At some point, Pastor Al is going to pipe up and say, that's why we pity you, Pastor. (laughs) Always a bridegroom, never a bride. It's been like, I don't know, 30-some years since we've been back to the Super Bowl. Whatever. Hope springs eternal. I talk about the Cowboys with various individuals because I love the Cowboys. My fear is that out of a fear of man and a lack of love for God, when I meet somebody new, I'll be more inclined to talk about whatever's happening in the world of sports than I will be inclined to talk about what great and wonderful things God is doing in my life. Are you going through trials? Many of us are. Do we no longer believe Romans 8.28 that says that God works all things together for good for those who love him? Why is it that so often when we meet someone new, we start to immediately bicker and complain about the hardships or the difficulties we're going through rather than sharing with them out of joy and happiness? You know, I'm not entirely sure what God is doing here. Maybe this, maybe that. I don't know. We'll find out. What do you think God might be doing? We'll talk about the cowboys, but we won't talk about Christ. Do we love to go to church where the Bible is preached? If we did, then in the same way we would invite people to our homes on Super Bowl Sunday to watch the Super Bowl contest, if we loved the Word of God preached in that same way, we'd be inviting people to join us here at church to hear God's Word and We'd be taking them out for pizza and nachos and whatever other junk food afterwards. Would we not? Be convicted. We need God's word more than we need our daily bread. Amos tells us, in that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. He's talked about a famine. He's talked about a drought. The famine and the drought are not real food or real water It's spiritual food and spiritual drink. And the young men are going to faint. In this famine, Amos sees the young as being especially the sufferers. When the truth goes, hope goes with it. When you encounter individuals who are truly depressed, they no longer see any light at the end of the tunnel, but only darkness. 
as God's people, as those who know the Lord, we should see always that eternal, enduring light because the Lord has promised us in his word. In Isaiah, prophet Isaiah, who is a contemporary of Amos, God speaking through Isaiah says, a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. As for me, the Lord says, this is my covenant with them, my spirit that is upon you. He's talking about Jesus. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth. So God is making a promise to the son. The father speaking of the son says, I'm going to put my words in your mouth and they will never leave your mouth. What about those of us who have believed in the son? My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth, nor out of the mouth of your offspring after you, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring from this time forth and forevermore. I don't know how long we as a country will be able to quickly turn and ask, what does the Bible say? I fear, and I think the trends bear it out, that the opportunity to turn and hear what the Word of God is saying to us is becoming an increasingly rare opportunity. But I disagree with the statistics that were presented at the beginning. Mind you, I know churches are closing in mass. But the projection is this. According to a non-Christian Uh, Historical Preservation Society. 40% of churches apparently are going to close their doors between now and 2030. And they say everyone else is going to close their doors in the next five years. But that's not what the Word of God tells me. There may be a famine on this land. There may be a drought. But God's Word will never disappear from the earth because of His grace and His goodness to us. There may be a famine and there may be a drought. But when you break that cookie, as it gets smaller and smaller, it gets harder and harder to be broken. Maybe 40% of churches will close their doors in the next seven years. But God will never lack for a man to testify to his glory on this earth. Church, we should aspire to be that witness. Let us bear fruit in season. As Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word We thank you, Lord, that your word will accomplish all that you have purposed for it to accomplish. We thank you, Lord, that you send your word forth and it will do all your will. It will fulfill all your purposes and it will bring full and complete glory to you. And at the end of time, all the world will see you as you are. Lord, help your people to be a people who treasure your word, who hold it and who do not come to it too late, but come to it early and often. God, allow your word to sink down into our hearts, to 
continue to mold and to shape us to be people in the likeness and the image of Jesus Christ. We pray, God, that you would conform us more and more day by day to who he is and whom he desires us to be. Do this according to your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.